You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I am joined with my lovely and fabulous and talented co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. You, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we have somebody from Sweden or something there. (laughs) So how have you guys been doing? I suddenly have like this need to watch Sound of Music. I'm just like, y'all know this. Sounds like she was yodeling, I think, somewhere in there. Maybe Austria or something. Did you know that, oh, I was about to say Julia Roberts, but it's not Julia Roberts, it's Julie Andrews. Every time they filmed that initial sequence on the Sound of Music, they did it by a helicopter. So every time the helicopter rounded, she got thrown in face first in the mud. Oh, no. I guess there were no drones back then when they filmed, huh? Definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> I have a good story. My mom worked with a guy at USAA for many, many years. And his dad worked on um, Buena Vista, you know, Disney the people who produce Sound of Music, okay? Yeah. And so he was on, this guy that she worked with, when he was a kid, he worked on the sets helping getting things together. And he was on the filming set for Sound of Music. Wow. And he was on the crew, the glass gazebo that they did the dance scene in. You are 16 uh-huh. going on 17. <laughs> da, 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 da. That, that one, okay. Yes, that one. So they had to clean that glass gazebo just impeccably. No spots, no smudges, you know, just it had to be absolutely perfect. They didn't know what was going to happen during the filming for the huge rain shower that happens. They had oh, no clue. Wow. They they sat there and watched the filming and all of those like young men and women who had spent, I think it was probably days getting that gazebo absolutely perfect were almost in tears when they saw like this torrential downpour happening yeah. all over the gazebo. Wow. wow. What a story. The backstory from The Sound of Music. I know. So this guy's father was also the guy who wrote the Davy Crockett song. That's random. I know. Pretty cool. <laughs> when I was a kid and there were only three TV stations, we every year the Sound of Music would come on. And I think I must have seen the Sound of Music seven years in a row. I feel like I could almost, I almost know the script for the Sound of Music. And it was, it was actually a great movie, you know. I mean, it actually had some movie. plot there and some intrigue and suspense. And it was actually a really good movie, I thought. I would totally agree with that. All right. Well, actually, what we had talked earlier, and we were going to, and we talked about the sound of music, but we talked earlier about something completely different than the sound of music. And that is technology today and how, you know, when we first started this podcast, we didn't realize that we could do it via Zoom and we figured out that, yeah, we could. And same thing with our medical careers. We didn't really realize that telemedicine would become so huge as it did in 2020. And so I was talking with some of my friends the other day that, have are in different jobs and and are on Zoom meetings a lot. And I was talking about how, you know, I like Zoom okay, but I really just miss being around people and talking to people and seeing people in person. 
And one of my really good friends was like, really? I love Zoom. I'd, I'd much rather do Zoom. I love being at home all the time by myself. And so I just wondered, what are your all's thoughts about that? I think there's definitely pros and cons. Like I don't Zoom with friends all that much. I probably still like text. So t- Carrie, don't you take that as an affront? She doesn't Zoom with friends. What are you doing right now? I am personally <laughs> offended and mortified. I am too, Susan. My okay. gosh. With the exception of you two, okay, I don't <laughs> Zoom with other friends, generally speaking. And we all make an effort to intentionally Zoom, which I think is fantastic. Um, but with kind of my other social circle, I don't usually, you know, do this type of thing with them. I I, I kind of just do the same thing I've always done. But you Zoom with telemedicine. What do you what do you think about Zooming with telemedicine? For telemedicine, I really love the aspect of some of our patients, especially their partners, are way more comfortable seeing me at home than they are <laughs> coming into my office. Uh, I think that stepping foot in, in the infertility doctor's office is a major impediment that we have to overcome with all people who are struggling with infertility. And for a lot of people, I think it makes it easier. Um, patients don't have to take off as much time from work. I mean, I had an appointment at the cardiologist's office. I went in, saw them in person, all this stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, next time we can do telemedicine because I mean, I don't have to drive. I don't have to sit in a waiting room. Yeah, You know, I'm like at my desk, get it done. And I'm back to, you know, doing my normal thing. I miss being able to give that physical touch when my patients need it. You know, you just, you can't Uh give a hug or put your hand on somebody's hand. That's what I really miss. I mean, I see all of my, I mean, we, you know, and what we do, we have a lot of face-to-face time with our patients anyway, with ultrasounds and and, in those types of things, but especially for new patients and um, follow-up visits, I, I really appreciated the flexibility. It's not the right thing for everybody. And I think it's nice for us to be able to have both available. And I think without COVID happening, um, it would have taken another decade or two for telemedicine, yeah. if ever, to reach the level that, that it is now. I think the insurance companies would have not necessarily paid for it. I think that's the big problem. It, with- it would have been much harder. And and yeah. this is one time I was happy for government saying you need to be able to do this. And and hopefully we'll be able to continue to do this because there are definitely populations and not even the main populations we serve. I mean, there's, um, you know, populations of people who have decreased mobility and, and things like that. And I mean, we all have patients who live two, three hours away and that's the nature of infertility. I mean, there's, there's not many fertility doctors for the whole United States. And, um, you know, we tend to be all kind of concentrated in certain areas. And so if you happen to not live in one of those areas, I I think we're able to provide a service much easier than what we have been able to before. Yeah. What do you think, Carrie? So I love being able to see my patients by Zoom because of some of the advantages that I see that they don't necessarily see, but I think that they appreciate, which is that, for example, on Thursday, that happened to be my my day where it was a heavy Zoom day. I was not scheduled to be physically in the office for any reason that day. And so I saw a patient every half an hour for every available open slot during the day, which meant that I was able to see a ton of people. I ran on time the entire day. <laughs> when I'm in the office, that doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because people can't find the office. They come in 
right at their time to check in. And when you factor in the extra five minutes it takes to check in or 10, if it's a busy day, um, then they have to pee and then they have to do, you know, whatever they have to physically walk back to my office. Like all of those things add up. And so even though it's only maybe eight to 10 minutes, by the time you're six patients deep, that's a lot of time. You're running a lot later. And so I can see those patients on a, a very regular schedule have actually more time with them because instead of giving them 20 minutes before I'm like, all right, I kind of got to wrap this up so I can go see my next patient. I can give them the full 29 and a half minutes and can get all of their questions answered and really give them more time than I would otherwise be able to. So I do miss a lot of the in-person aspects of it, but we do see our patients in the office for their IUIs and for their retrievals and their transfers and all the ultrasounds and blood draws in between. So they do see us a lot, but I think that many patients get frustrated at the time component of fertility, and this is a way to decrease that. And so, you know, I do miss giving people hugs um, because the fertility patients need hugs. You just do. Yeah, absolutely. That is the the one thing that Zoom just can't do. But I think in a lot of respects, it's superior in many, many other ways. Because if I need to bring in a coordinator at the drop of a hat, I don't have to leave my office and chase them down. I can just Zoom and say, you know, can you hop on for a minute? And it's huge. Um, so, and we always, we did a lot of telemedicine before because of our international patient population, which mm-hmm. kind of relates to a lot of the topic that we're going to talk to today. So, you know, it was not, not anything new for our office, which was nice. So now it's time to answer a question from one of our listeners. And I think Susan, you have the question of the day today. I do. Okay. So our question um, from our loyal listener is I live in a state with legal marijuana. I used to smoke cannabis, but not regular cigarettes when I was younger And now I use it occasionally. I've been trying to conceive for five months via IUI. Of course, I don't want to do anything harmful to a developing pregnancy. So I'm abstaining during the two-week wait and only use it minimally during the rest of the cycle once I know I'm not pregnant. I know the science you've talked about with nicotine and its byproducts, but what about THC and CBD? Any thoughts on smoking marijuana versus eating edibles or even topical applications? I've heard that CBD oil can help with trying to conceive and it's recommended by the fertility clinic CNY. Of course, I know smoking anything can be harmful. That's a given. But are there specific fertility or hormonal concerns with THC CBD blends that are applied topically, such as the lotion I use for carpal tunnel syndrome type inflammation in my hands or orally, such as the gummies or candies? These have measured dosages, about usually about 10 milligrams per serving, so it's not a completely uncontrolled amount as it would be if these things were homemade. I am very curious to hear what you think about CBD treatment and what you think repercussions of THC use might be while trying to conceive even between the cycles. Thanks for considering my question. Love your podcast. You know, I think that really anybody, you know, any physician can give you an opinion, but the key is it's just an opinion. There's no randomized perspective studies that really look at those things. I mean, I think those are great questions. And I think as marijuana becomes more and more legalized, we need to answer those questions. But I kind of sort of think of it in the realm of alcohol. It's kind of one of those things that probably you don't want your baby exposed to. And, you know, I think probably, or what I tell my patients is I wouldn't recommend using it just because we don't know. And, and you know, that's, you know, when you're pregnant or you're early pregnant, that's the last thing that you would want to take a chance with is your child's life. And so, I typically think it's best just to avoid it until we have more studies. 
What are your thoughts, Carrie? So I tend to say we don't know that there's any advantage to it and there's probably some pretty clear disadvantages to it. And there's there's some other components in fertility treatment. So in looking at the CBD and the potential benefits that it has while trying to conceive, you know, they're talking about anti-inflammatory inflammatory and antioxidant properties. You can achieve a lot of that with good nutrition, you know, even just uh, what I tell my patients, eat the rainbow, meaning eat a lot of fruits and veggies that cover red to you know blue. Um, and you can get a lot of those antioxidants. Um, CBD itself, because it doesn't have the active THC component, may be a little bit better, maybe a little bit safer, but we really don't know at this point. However, we do know that marijuana can impact the hypothalamic pituitary um, gonad access, and that applies to both men and women. So Carrie, what is that? <laughs> It's the organization of the two components of the brain and the ovaries and how they talk to each other. And so marijuana can get in the way of that. And that certainly doesn't work in anyone's best interest because that system has to function perfectly in order for you to get pregnant. Um, The other thing to consider is that, and I see this with anesthesia with my patients a lot. One of the scariest cases I've ever had was a woman who didn't tell me she was smoking marijuana. We put her to sleep for an IVF retrieval. Her lungs were cranky and ticked off. They spasmed. And that was a long 30 seconds. Um, There's other things where we tend to see that those patients burn through propofol a lot faster. And that's one of the really common meds we use during a retrieval. Which is true of alcohol too. People tend to burn through propofol, the numbing medicine for retrievals. Yeah. Um, And so the other thing that I always... um, I always ask my patients and trying to kind of figure out of, okay, if you're a regular marijuana user, why are you using it? Because in some cases, it's a purely social exercise. And in those cases, they say, oh yeah, it's because I get together with my friends on the weekend and that's just what we do. For many people though, they will say straight out, yeah, I take it so I can go to sleep. I take it to deal with my anxiety. I take it to deal with pain. I take it to deal with X, Y, and Z. And what's your reply to that? (laughs) Well, it it depends because a lot of people are doing it where I can, they give me enough information so I can see like, oh, you're taking this for anxiety. And while I don't really want them on a lot of the anxiety meds, because those aren't great for pregnancy either. If they're not in counseling, let's get into counseling and and get a therapist and and use some of the other techniques because I you don't want to be dependent on anything, no matter what that is. Even being dependent on running to deal with anxiety has its own set of problems. And so- Mm -hmm. So I want to look deeper into why are you doing it? What are you doing it for? And and think about a lot of the other collateral damage that comes in with using it. And so, you know, if someone absolutely has to use it, I tend to tell them, let's do edibles rather than smoking, because if we have to put you to sleep for any reason, your lungs will be less ticked off. Um, You can oftentimes meter the dose better with an edible, although, you know, FDA regulation kind of depends. It's better now that it's legalized. In your state. Not my state. (laughs) You can tell Carrie knows a lot about it. She's had this conversation before with people. You better believe it. You all the time, all the time. But I, I appreciate that people will tell me about it now mm-hmm. because I don't think the usage has changed. I just think people's willingness to tell me about it has changed. So it means I can spot problems faster and that I appreciate. Absolutely. 
So today we're going to talk about fertility options for same-sex male couples. Um, we just talked about fertility options for same-sex female couples in another segment. So we're going to talk about male couples today. So Carrie, tell me a little bit. Of, I know you your practice particularly has a lot of same-sex male couples that you see. Tell me kind of what you talk to them about in, in the initial visit. So we do. We do see uh, a ton of um, ton of LGBT couples, lots and lots of, of gay male couples. And we actually see them coming from all over the world. Um, and part of the reason we see so many is because when you're dealing with a male couple, you know right off the bat, there are certain biological uh, aspects of reproduction that are just not there, you know, in the way of the eggs, in the way of the uterus. And Unlike donor sperm, where you can relatively easily, compared to an egg donor and a GC or gestational carrier, um, you can get donor sperm pretty easily, freeze it, and go. You can't do that with an egg donor in quite the same way, and you can't do that with a gestational carrier in quite the same way. So it takes more skill, and it takes more regulatory impact. So what you're saying is, with same-sex male couples, the gamete they're missing is an egg, and it's harder to get an egg than it is to get sperm, basically. It's not just the getting of the egg. Um, what makes the the issues with male couples more, more involved is the regulatory component of it. Because you're going to get an egg from the donor the same way you're going to get an egg from uh, a female IP or intended parent um, in a heterosexual couple. So the, the medicine is not necessarily hugely different. Um, there are some aspects of it that are, but but really, for the most part, it's the same. What is very different is the logistics of all of that. Because when you have a male-female couple come in, you're pretty much just dealing with the two of them. When you have a male couple come in, you're not only dealing with the two of them, but you're all you're also dealing with oftentimes um, two external sources, and and that two external comes becomes four plus it becomes two sperm providers. So who are the external sources? So the external sources, there's there's three parts to doing male a male couple. The first part is getting the sperm. That part's the easiest out of the whole whole thing. <laughs> they, they get on they get on their flight, come out to Vegas, give us sperm. Um, oftentimes it's an international flight because we've got patients coming from, I think the last count was like 35 different countries. And so they're coming from all over the place. So, so when they come, you can freeze the sperm. The sperm can be frozen for how long? However long it needs to be. But there are rules about freezing the sperm because it's got to be FDA tested because you have to do that in order to work with a gestational carrier in the future. And you have to follow those rules, which include a physical exam, uh, a very lengthy questionnaire cor- that corresponds to the the FDA's requirements. You have to do a set of labs that are, they're pretty much the same as the labs that all of us do anyway, but it's got to go through a different laboratory that is FDA cleared. And so you can't just send it to your normal Quester LabCorp. Um, and then of course you have to get the sperm. And we typically want to get as many vials of sperm as possible because of all the other testing and because in many cases they're coming from a longer distance. So that's the first part. The second part is embryo creation. And this is where your first set of external people come in. And and you've already dealt with a little bit above and beyond because you're dealing with two male sperm providers as opposed to just one. So you get your egg donor and they have to choose the egg donor first and foremost. Um, So that's one external person. And very frequently you have to have, um, or you have an agency involved 
or a frozen egg bank involved in doing this. And so that's another set of people who get involved. So Susan, talk to me a little bit about if you're a a same-sex male couple and you're trying to find an egg donor, what are some of the qualities you want to look in egg for egg donors? So as in when we're looking at whether egg or sperm donors, most of the time you're going to know things like height, weight, hair color, eye color, ethnic background, education, medical history, family history. Most of the donors are going to be screened for recessive genetic conditions. You usually are able to see baby or childhood pictures depending on the egg bank that you are or egg donor program that you're using. Sometimes they allow adult pictures. Um, That's just going to vary from company to company. And so do you want to use a known donor? Would you ever want to do that versus an anonymous donor, egg donor? Um, That's a very personal decision. You know, um, if you are using a known donor, generally, you know, they're still going to have to go through all the same FDA testing as an anonymous donor. Um, They're generally going to need to go through a counseling session um, that's recommended by our national society to talk about things like disclosure, non-disclosure. And you're going to generally have to work on the legal paperwork um, having to do with parental rights and that type of thing. With egg donors, with male couples, the other thing you need to think about is if you have two sperm providers for one egg donor, you have to be a little bit pickier about the number of eggs um, that you see on an antral follicle count. What's an antral follicle count? So the antral follicle count is the initial ultrasound that's done typically on approximately the third day of their period that shows the number of eggs that are eligible to be recruited by their brain hormones that can eventually become mature eggs that we use in an IVF cycle to create embryos. And so an AMH level, the anti-mullerian hormone, which is a blood test to show is her ovarian reserve with reference to the eggs that are in deep storage, that tells you if the levels are low, medium, or high. I typically find that follicle count or that AFC is very important in these couples because you can have a really high AMH without a correspondingly high AFC. So kind of what you're saying is if you have a male-male couple They want an egg donor who looks like she's going to have a lot of eggs because we're going to split that and potentially half the or half the eggs are going to be fertilized with one partner sperm, half the eggs are going to be fertilized with another partner sperm. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense to try to take advantage of a single cycle, hopefully to be your only cycle because it's not cheap. Right. We also try and evaluate, you know, certainly not everyone can have what's considered a proven donor. Um, Every donor has to have a first time. But many times in these cases, if there's any kind of sperm issue as well, we try and get a proven donor or a known donor if we can. Uh, uh, Not a known donor, a known, what I mean is a known entity, meaning someone who's donated before. So we know what kind of egg numbers she makes what percentages are mature, and how many of those go on to make good blastocysts for embryos as well. So what would you say to a male couple who says, you know, we don't really want to know which one of us fathered this pregnancy or the pregnancy that we ultimately have. We want to just, we want it just to happen and we don't really care to know that. What do you, what do you tell them about that? I always tell them that is totally fine. I don't need to tell you that for lab purposes and recording purposes, we have to know. Because those medically, that that makes a difference because of things that happen later with the gestational carrier. 
And, and I would say that that's true, even if, you know, even if we didn't have to use a gestational carrier, sometimes you'll have a heterosexual couple that comes in and they need to use a donor sperm backup and they don't want to know. And, and that's, they don't want to know whose sperm, whether it was the partners or the donors um, got used. That's totally fine. But for lab and recording purposes, we have to know. So we are going to keep that all very clear. And later on in the discussion, oftentimes they'll say, you know, transfer the best one available, referring to the best embryo available, because that that's music to my ears because that means that we have the highest chance possible of getting their carrier pregnant on the first shot. But, but we've got to know all the biology, even if we'd never tell them the biology. So Susan, the third part of this equation is the gestational carrier. So tell us a little bit about that and how somebody would go about finding a gestational carrier and just a little bit about that process. So I think the first thing to kind of go over is a little bit of definitions because um, there are some words that are thrown around <laughs> in gestational carrier land um, that are used <laughs> that are used interchangeably, but I they they are very very different. Um, so you have a woman who is a gestational carrier who is a woman who is carrying an embryo for somebody else. Okay, no biological relationship. There is no biology going on. Okay. However, there are also people who are surrogates. Now, there are lots of people who are called surrogates who are actually gestational carriers. <laughs> and this is one of those things that I'm like very specific when I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. A surrogate traditionally is a woman who is donating an egg and her uterus, okay? And I would say most practices in the United States don't do traditional surrogacy anymore. It is more commonly done in some other parts of the world. Um, it's, it's, it just tends to be more ethically, legally messy. <laughs> so essentially that means that the woman ovulates, we use sperm, inseminate the woman with one or both of the partner sperm. She gets pregnant and carries the pregnancy. And once she delivers, she basically gives the baby to the same-sex male couple. Exactly. But I I would like our listeners to know that even amongst reproductive endocrinologists, lots of people just call them all surrogates. And um, like I said, I I tend to be very specific in calling gestational carriers. So if somebody's talking surrogates, you, you really need to make sure, are they truly talking about traditional surrogates or are they talking about a gestational carrier? So some people um, have friends, family members, different individuals who are willing to carry a pregnancy for them, okay? And so it might be a friend, it might be a sister, a sister-in-law, who, who, you know, anybody in your, your, your circle of your world. The other option is to hire a gestational carrier through an agency. And an agency is going to help kind of pave the path for the gestational carrier and you as the intended parent to be able to walk this journey together. So when you're working with agencies, and I would say in my experience, probably 90 plus percent of couples are working with an agency. Now, some of that is based on my patient population, which is very heavily international, very heavily, um, you know, couples who that is the only manner by which they're going to find a surrogate. Um, And really GC or gestational carrier is the most appropriate phrase for that. So 
they work with the agency and the agency will go through and they will screen the surrogate or the GC candidate ahead of time. And they will go through, they'll have her do the site component ahead of time. They will do a home study. They will do the background check. They will do the credit check. They will do a lot of the legal stuff ahead of time for that couple. Well, one thing I would say, though, I would agree with that. A good agency would do that, but I would really beware and I would look to your reproductive endocrinologist to recommend an agency yes. because not all agencies are equal. And, and we've had some bad experience, in fact, recently with an agency that really didn't do their due diligence for the donor or for the gestational carrier and a patient that's gone through two different gestational carriers and now hopefully we'll find a third one for. So all agencies are not equal. And it's true to say, I think, and I think we would all agree that if somebody doesn't have an agency, it can still be done. You don't have to use an agency. It's just that it's a lot of times it's a quicker and easier route to find a gestational carrier. Yeah. And the other thing about an agency that we have found is that the the clinic, or at least a you know, your good clinic is going to be able to negotiate all of the the medical clearance components of it because there's three stages of working with a GC. The first one is medical clearance, where we go through all of the testing. So she gets a ton of blood work, a physical exam, a full history. We have already done a record review of all of her um, deliveries, at least everything we can get our hands on, which is sometimes everything and sometimes very little. Um, and, and we go through all the medical clearance and we make sure that the inside of her uterus looks good. And we're really meticulous about all those things. But your medical clinic is not set up to do the background check and the legal check and all of those types of things. So, so your good agency is going to take care of all of that. And you can have IPs or intended parents who are really meticulous and can accomplish that on their own. But but it means that someone, it's a full-time job for someone. Um, and so they spend a ton of time doing that. They spend a ton of time booking travel. They spend a ton of time making sure that the logistics work because when you're working with a gestational carrier, it is very, very common that that GC doesn't live in the same place as her clinic. I mean, I have more cases than I can count, easily a majority where my intended parents live in one country. I'm in Nevada my the egg donor is coming from another state and the GC is coming from yet another state and the agency is located in yet another state. <laughs> and so the agency helps work with a lot of logistics of finding a monitoring clinic close to home so that, because the GC only has to come out and see the clinic once for her screening visit and then once for her embryo transfer and everything else we do long distance because technology is great. Um, but the agency helps navigate all of that so that the IPs can, can work their day jobs because otherwise it, it becomes very stressful and very time-consuming. And a lot of IPs don't realize that going in. They only see the financial savings and not using an agency. And they don't realize that there's, a, in a good agency, a wealth of experience behind the dollars they're spending that can be really quite useful. A well-oiled machine can be very valuable. Very. So Susan, what would you say would be some of the characteristics that um, intended parents should look for in a gestational carrier? Right. So, I mean, most um, gestational carriers are going to have had successful deliveries in the past. I think we would all prefer most of those deliveries to have been vaginal deliveries versus C-sections. You know, I know OB-GYN wants somebody to have a fourth or fifth or sixth C-section. Um, knowing about kind of, you know, the history of those pregnancies, you know, watching for complications. 
um, somebody who's in good medical health, somebody who has a normal weight, doesn't have other medical issues. Um, I think a lot of those things tend to be more um, of an issue when you're trying to do a gestational carrier, you know, as a known gestational carrier. Um, But I've had plenty of um, gestational carriers come through for screening who were not necessarily (laughs) um, clearing all of those um, milestones. Uh, You know, having somebody who really understands, you know, the process of what they're going through. This is something, you know, gestational carriers are definitely um, giving a gift. You know, what they're doing is an amazing thing. As somebody who... I was not a good pregnant person. Pregnancy was a means to an end. Um, like I cannot fathom being a gestational carrier myself because it, it was not a pleasant experience. There is other There are other women out there who it is the most amazing experience and they just, it's a great time in their lives and they just like take hold of it. And that's like so amazingly exciting. I mean, I love, I love working with those women. Yeah. Um, you know, and so those are, those are some things that you're looking at and, and, you know, people who have, you know, the, the, they understand what, what's going on. And so, you know, I mean, I know those sound like very kind of generic things, but as opposed to Carrie's experience, most of my gestational, I've had gestational carriers from agencies, but I've had more known gestational carriers in my practice. And um, finding those people who are close to you that truly understand the implications. um, And and on the other side of it, you know, the intended parents and making sure that you understand having that respect for this woman who is, you know, dedicating nine months of their life to help create something absolutely phenomenal for you. Um, That it's, this isn't just a paid gig. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's heart and soul that goes with this. And so um, it's, it's the right match when it's beautiful. So Carrie, any closing words or would you like to sum it up for us? We've talked about a lot here today. It takes longer than you think it does. <laughs> that's, good. that's really good advice, actually. <laughs> it is more complex than you think it is. Um, sometimes my guys in particular, because they have not been dealing with menstrual strike, menstrual cycles their whole lives, they kind of forget about <laughs> nuances that are there that, you know, the, the donor, the GC, my team, me can't control um, when things happen. Like biology happens, life happens. Um, there will always be something unexpected. And what I would say the most important thing is the people that you're finding help you to help you through this. The main intent is happy, healthy baby, happy, healthy donor, happy, healthy surrogate uh, or GC and happy, healthy parents at the end of it. Because there are thousands of decisions that occur between the beginning consultation and the end, you know, in the delivery room. Um, And no parent is going to know what all of them are. So you really have to trust your team to say, okay, we're going to keep you involved as much as we can, but there's every decision that we are making is with that end goal in mind. And so, you know, that trust is important and asking questions is important and knowing when to stop asking questions is equally important (laughs) because you're never going to know anything, everything, excuse me, um, about going through this. So, you know, it takes a while buckle in for the ride. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is not an easy way to parenthood, but it is very, very gratifying. And my daddies are just, those are some of the cutest pictures. <laughs> they are just, you can see the joy just exploding out of them when they're holding Aww. the babies. 
Those are some great words of wisdom, Carrie. Yes. Um, and to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsandcensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions are answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. Don't hold back. We love to hear your ideas and questions. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Have a lovely week. Bye. Bye. Bye.